Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Monday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I am coming to you on this spectacular Labor Day with a special edition of the show for two reasons. The first is because Palmetto State Armory is having a hell of a Labor Day sale, and that's going on. I want all of my listeners to be able to take advantage of that. Um, There's also a great deal on Hollow Sun Optics right now, as well as the usual ammo and firearm deals that they are well known for. The link for access to those sales are in the show description. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if there's something specific that you're looking for. I would love to be the one to help you. The second reason is because the mud fest that is burning man and the crazy fed encouraged Nazis are clouding the airwaves for some important shit that's going down and the media is nothing but a bunch of ostriches with their heads in the sand. And I think some of this is important and y'all may want to know about it. So I will warn you, though, there's a lot today. Um, Okay, so this first article, this is a Substack article for someone who I only recently discovered, but, and I say that to lend itself to its credibility, (laughs) but given my own anecdotal experience recently with my FFL, I tend to believe that this story is probably true. Uh, State Representative Justin Humphrey from District 19 in Pushmataha Pushmataha County, Oklahoma, I have no clue how to say that name, has called for a thorough investigation into allegations of constitutional and civil rights violations by none other than the ATF. The allegations were brought forward by 52-year-old high school history teacher, Baptist pastor, and part-time gun dealer, Russell Fincher. Mr. Fincher claims that the ATF agents employed intimidation tactics and coercion to force him into surrendering his federal firearms license. Fincher has been a FFL for three years and has mostly dealt with firearms at gun shows. Fincher claims the ordeal began with a seemingly innocuous call from the ATF in April, asking for permission to inspect his home-based gun business. Fincher willingly agreed and welcomed two ATF inspectors. The inspectors photographed some of Fincher's 4473 forms with their cell phones a practice Fincher later discovered is illegal but reportedly common. According to Gun Report's account, and I want to go back to this uh, illegal reportedly common, I think there are certain circumstances by which photographing the forms is legal and allowable, but that's beside the point. Again, this is not my article. Um, But according to... Uh, This account, on June 16th, as Fincher and his son were preparing for a gun show in Tulsa, they were unexpectedly confronted by a massive show of force. 
seven vehicles carrying over a dozen ATF agents armed with ARs dressed in tactical gear raided Fincher's home in Clayton. This intimidating display culminated in Fincher being handcuffed on his deck while surrounded by agents. The presence of armed agents and their aggressive behavior left Fincher and his son traumatized. Fincher said, they called me out onto my deck and handcuffed me. My son was there, saw the whole thing. He's 13 years old. They held me on the porch for about an hour. I was surrounded by agents. One by one, they yelled at me about what I was doing. In my mind, I decided if they're going to beat me up over every little thing, I'm done. As soon as I said, if you want my FFL, you can have it. One of the agents pulled out a piece of paper and said, well, then sign here. He had made three copies in case I screwed one up. It was exactly what they wanted. I was shocked, Fincher added. During the raid, ATF agents pressured Fincher to terminate his federal firearms license. They presented him with a pre-prepared termination document and coerced him at gunpoint into signing them. Using the threat of further action against him and his firearms dealing acquaintances, a cult commander, five Glocks, a pristine AK, a Polytech pre-banned machined underfolder worth thousands of dollars were among the firearms the ATF loaded up as soon as Fincher surrendered his FFL. They took more than 50 of my personal guns, Fincher said. I asked them why, and they said, they're evidence. I'd estimate they took fifty dollars to $60,000 worth of guns. The agent's actions resembled extortion rather than a legitimate law enforcement search. Furthermore, one agent's statement, quote, tell your firearms buddies we're coming for them, constituted an unlawful threat and abuse of authority. After the ATF's SWAT team cleared Fincher's home, they called the agent in charge of the raid, Special Agent Theodore Mongol, and told him that it was safe to come up. You're done. We have to shut you down, Fincher recalls Mongol saying. You tell all your FFL buddies we're coming for them. We're shutting down the gun shows too. One agent told me they hate home FFLs. He said, if I wanted to sell a Browning shotgun to someone at a gun show with no paperwork, that's no problem. But when I sell a Glock or an AR lower, that's a gangbanger. I asked him where it said that in the regulations. He said, no gangbanger would be shooting people with a $2,000 Benelli. To me, that was one of the dumbest statements he could have made. Several agents accused Fincher of making too much money through his gun show sales. He told them at the last show he attended, he only sold $75 worth of ammunition, but spent $1,200 on hotels, tables, gas, and food. They said I was basically using my FFL to sell guns personally, Fincher said. They said I was going around the system, putting guns on the street that should not be there. He told me, if you're willing to forfeit them, we can make a lot of this go away, Fincher said. This sounds to me like a shakedown. They seized my guns as punitive damage. They knew how to get me by taking all my guns. 
There was no rhyme nor reason to what they took. Honestly, they took the most expensive and rarest ones. On Wednesday, Rep. Humphrey forwarded the report to relevant Oklahoma authorities, including Attorney General Gentner, Drummond, Pushmataha County Sheriff B.J. Hedgecock, and Governor Kevin Stitt. He called for a thorough investigation into the potential violations of state and federal laws, as well as the infringement upon Fincher's constitutional rights. The Biden ATF wants to make it as hard as possible on the average American to arm themselves. The easiest way to do that is to jam up and coerce FFLs to get out of the business so that you have nowhere to purchase them. It's an attempt to circumvent the Second Amendment, and I'm not sure what the solution is unless states begin to grow spines and ice the ATF out of conducting business in their states without prior notification. Okay, so you guys know how they're trying to bring masks back and all? Well, (laughs) for once, CNN did their job and asked Anthony Fauci this weekend about a study showing that face masks made little to no difference in the course of the COVID-19 pandemic last go-round. He acknowledged the masking study during the segment while continuing to insist that at an individual level, level, other research shows face coverings are effective at curtailing the spread of the virus. When you're talking about the effect on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data is less strong. But there are other studies, Michael, that show at an individual level's For individuals, they might be protective. Keyword there being might be protective. Four years later, and this man still knows nothing. I feel like Ingrid from Game of Thrones, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Fauci also stressed during the interview that at the moment, we're not talking about forcing anybody to do anything. During the initial onset of the pandemic, he suggested that masks we're not providing the type of protection people think it is and underscored the severe shortage of masks afflicting healthcare providers. As mask production ramped up and supply snarls abated, Fauci reversed course and endorsed masking to tamp down the spread. I don't regret anything I said then because in the context of the time in which I said it, it was correct. We were told in our task force meetings that we have a serious problem with the lack of PPE and masks for the health providers who are putting themselves in harm's way every day to take care of sick people. There has been a sharp uptick in COVID-19 cases nationally over the recent weeks, elevating concerns about stringent pandemic suppression measures returning. You guys, they can't return if no one complies. I know last go around, it was new and fresh and scary or whatever, but I'm probably going to shame you if you move into compliance mode this go around. I'm just saying, letting you know that in advance. Speaking of COVID, I think it should be noted that a federal appeals court ruled on Friday that a lawsuit against the FDA over its public campaign against the use of ivermectin to treat COVID can continue which reverses a lower court decision. This may not seem important in the grand scheme of things, 
but the point of the lawsuit is important for future purposes. Three doctors sued the FDA last year claiming that the agency's anti-ivermectin campaign went too far, overstepping its authority and acting more as a medical body than a regulator. A district court ruled that the suit could not continue, but the Fifth Circuit Appeals Court revived the doctor's hope in its Friday ruling, sending the case back to a lower court where it will be reconsidered. The FDA is not a physician. It has authority to inform, announce, and apprise, but not to endorse, denounce, or advise. Judge Don Willett wrote for the appeals court, the doctors have plausibly alleged that the FDA's posts fell on the wrong side of the line between telling about and telling to. The FDA's campaign, which included viral signs reading, you're not a horse, emphasized agency recommendations that ivermectin, an anti-parasite medication, often used for horses, but sometimes prescribed to humans, should not be used to treat COVID-19. I actually remember this post when it came out, and I swear I thought that their account had been hacked. Um, Growing up, my dad would always talk about Joe Arpaio and why his methods were so successful in eliminating a recidivism rate. Uh, He made life in prison miserable. It was humiliating that he made everybody wear like pink outfits. Uh, It was uncomfortable and not the least bit enjoyable. You committed crimes. You were there to pay penance for those crimes. This story that I'm about to share with you can only be summed up by times they are changing. Officials placed a Minnesota prison on emergency lockdown yesterday after about 100 inmates in one living unit refused to return to their cells. Inmates are now back in their cells, but union representatives for correctional officers said the situation highlights staffing problems and have, or that have, degraded the quality of life for inmates and security for prison personnel. The Department of Corrections spokesman, Andy Skugman, said that no injuries were reported at Stillwater Prison, which remained on lockdown Sunday night. The agency brought in negotiators and prison officers who specialize in responding to riots out of an abundance of caution. Skugman did not immediately respond to a request seeking to know how inmates were returned to their cells or whether negotiations resulted in promises to fix the staffing woes. Skugman told the Washington Post that some of the inmates were unhappy because officials limited facility-wide access to showers, phone use, and recreation due to staffing challenges. Anderson said, the staffing problems have restricted inmates' recreation time and other activities because there are not enough correctional officers to protect the facility. The lack of staff will cause the prison to continue down this unacceptable road of staff assaults, offenders controlling sections of our prisons, and added that action is needed. The lives of all correctional facility staff depends on it. The lack of staff will cause the prison to continue down this road. Uh, The lives of, oh, I'm sorry, I already read that part. Um, I feel like Arkham Asylum is becoming a real thing at this point. Like, 
the inmates are running this show now. It's crazy. Um, in addition to Zelensky firing his defense minister, Russia has taken its nuclear rhetoric to a new level after putting into service an advanced ICBM that Putin once said would make Moscow's enemies think twice. The head of the Russian space agency Roscosmos, Yuri Borisov, said that Sarmat missiles had assumed combat duty, according to the Russian state news agency TASS. It comes as the threat of Russia's nuclear capabilities has hung over the war in Ukraine started by Putin. The Sarmat was built with the intention to replace the R-36 ICBMs, which only had a range of up to 9,940 miles, Satan 2 is 116 feet long and can reportedly carry up to 15 light nuclear warheads with a range of 11,000 miles. The weapon is capable of striking targets in the United States and Europe. As a silo-based missile, the Sarmat is thought to have a short initial launch phase, which means surveillance systems have very little time to track its takeoff. Specifically, Putin has suggested that the missile has the highest tactical and technical characteristics and is capable of overcoming all modern means of anti-missile defense. It's feeling much less Cold War and much more lukewarm war at this point. It doesn't help that we have the most inept president and secretary of state of my lifetime. Well, I'm obviously not a fan of politicians if you've been listening to this morning show for any period of time, but not all of them are completely useless. Senator Shelley Moore Capito, who is a Republican out of West Virginia, recently joined with 25 Senate Republican colleagues led by Senator Tim Scott, who's wink, wink, nudge, nudge running for president, in sending a letter to Antony Blinken and the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, demanding answers from the administration regarding the approximate $6 billion it released to Iran in exchange for American prisoners. When the Obama administration released $400 million in liquidated assets to Iran in 2016, we warned that this precedent would put a price on American lives. Seven years later, the current administration is providing a ransom payment worth at least 15 times that amount to the world's largest state sponsor of terror and yet another violation of the United States' longstanding, quote, no concessions policy. In the release of the executive order on July 19th of 2022, The White House admitted that terrorist organizations, criminal groups, and other malicious actors who take hostages for financial, political, or other gain, as well as foreign states that engage in the practice of wrongful detention, including for political leverage or to seek concessions from the United States, threaten the integrity of international political system and the safety of the United States nationals and other persons abroad. The release of such a significant amount of money to the Iranian regime runs entirely counter to that claim and will only serve to encourage 
additional hostage taking for financial or political gain. I will so be looking forward to Corinne Jean-Pierre's thoughtful and thorough account of the administration's decision to give in to extortion by the number one state sponsor of terror. Speaking of giving in to terrorists, perhaps not the same region, but the same mentality. The Chinese owners of a company developing taxpayer-subsidized $2.4 billion electric vehicle battery facility in Michigan make a staff pledge of allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party and wear Red Army uniforms. Goshen High Tech, the Chinese parent company of Goshen Incorporated, took staff on several corporate retreats to CCP revolutionary memorials in Anhui Province, China, in 2021. During the trips, workers wore Red Army outfits and pledged to, quote, fight for communism to the end of my life. Footage posted on the Chinese battery manufacturer's website shows during the trips, workers wore Red Army outfits, and it comes amid rising concerns surrounding Chinese investment in U.S. industries and increased fears of communist spies infiltrating top businesses and educational institutions. Goshen Incorporated, the California-based company, which is wholly owned and controlled by Goshen High Tech, according to a Foreign Agents Registration Act filing. The U.S.-based company plans to invest $2.4 billion to construct two 550,000-square-foot production plants for electric vehicle batteries in Big Rapids, Michigan. The following day, Goshen High Tech's field trip visited the Revolutionary Memorial Hall in Huashan County, where employees pledged the oath of the CCP. Explicitly, the oath says, quote, I volunteer to join the CCP, uphold the party's platform, observe the provisions of the party's bylaws, carry out a member's duties, carry out the party's decisions, strictly observe the party's discipline, be loyal to the party, work hard to fight for communism as long as I live, be ready at all times to sacrifice everything for the party and people, and never betray the party, the workers chanted in the unearthed footage. Michigan residents have spoken out against the construction of the planned electric vehicle plant. Unrest has surfaced in Green Charter Township, where Goshen has purchased a swath of land for its planned factory. Community members in Green Charter, the small community where the plant is poised to reside, are issuing concerns over its connection to China. Days after Fed said they don't have the proper jurisdiction to review the plant's construction, local lawmakers got involved and urged officials like the governor and Senate to put a stop to the plant's construction to avoid a potential crisis. We're not stupid, the politician says, as he allows China to do exactly what it looks like they're doing. Now, as you're told 
on Sunday talk shows that you are experiencing amazing progress from this administration and that the economy is the strongest of ever all-time amazingness while barely being able to afford to put food on your table and gas in your vehicle, just know Joe Biden is working for you to make things better for your family. Trust the plan or some such nonsense. U.S. money supply is contracting for the first time since the Great Depression at a rate of about 2%. On the surface, Wall Street offers one guarantee, unpredictability. Since this decade began, the three major stock indexes, Dow Industrial, uh, S&P, NASDAQ, have been wrecked by two bear markets, a period of practical euphoria in 2021 that saw equities rally to all-time highs. Although there isn't an economic data point or predictive indicator that can, without fail, forecast short-term movements, there are a number of these tools that have uncanny correlations with directional stock market movements. One of the most pronounced is U.S. money supply. The two U.S. money supply metrics that investors tend to pay close attention to are M1 and M2. M1 accounts for the cash and coins that are in circulation, as well as the demand deposits within an individual's checking account. Meanwhile, M2 factors in everything in M1 and adds money market accounts, savings accounts, and certificates of deposits, or CDs, below $100,000. The main difference is that M2 factors in cash It takes a little extra work to get your hands on. For as far back as the eye can see, M2 has been climbing. Since the U.S. economy steadily grows over the long run, it's only natural that more cash and capital is needed to facilitate transactions. In fact, M2 rising is so common that some economists really don't even pay attention to it as a monthly reported data point. Over the past 153 years, there have only been five instances where M2 has declined by at least 2% on a year-over-year basis, the 1870s, 1893, 1921, 1931 through 1933, and 2023. Great Depression, and insert your best guess here. In the previous four instances, it was an ominous sign for Wall Street. As of July 2023, M2 money supply was 3.69% below the all-time high recorded in July of 2022. This marks the first time since the Great Depression that we've witnessed a meaningful decline in U.S. money supply. To be completely fair, the declines in the 1870s and 1893 occurred prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve. While the drops in 1921 and during the Great Depression came shortly after its creation. Today, there's a far better understanding from the nation's central bank in Capitol Hill on how to utilize monetary policy and fiscal policy, respectively, to avoid a depression. Really? Is there? 
an understanding because I'm I'm not seeing that understanding. Uh, furthermore, multiple rounds of fiscal stimulus during the COVID-19 pandemic led M2 money supply to catapult higher by 26% on a year-over-year basis because the Federal Reserve has really developed a far better understanding. It's always possible that the decline we're witnessing now of 3.69% represents nothing more than a return to some sort of mean level after a historic expansion of M2. However, history has been unkind to meaningful M2 money supply declines. With the core inflation rate, more than double the Fed's long-term target of 2%, less capital in circulation would more than likely lead to a deflationary recession. In addition, BRICS members, China and Saudi Arabia, are unloading hundreds of billions of dollars worth of U.S. treasuries. New numbers from the Treasury Department show that China trimmed its U.S. Treasury holdings from $938.8 billion in June of 2022 to $835.4 billion in June of 2023. That's a decrease of about $103.4 billion in just 12 months. Even though China has been dumping U.S. Treasuries over the past year, the country is still one of the largest creditors of the United States, second only to Japan's holdings of $1.105 trillion. As for new BRICS member Saudi Arabia, the Middle Eastern country reduced its holdings of U.S. debt by $11.1 billion over the same period, from $119.2 billion to $108.1 billion. The decline in the U.S. bond holdings of the two BRICS nations are a fresh sign of opposition to the U.S. dollar's hegemony. And Bloomberg's chief emerging markets economist, uh, Dowd, says that Saudi Arabia's move to riskier assets could influence the Federal Reserve's take on interest rates. Domestically higher risk means potential losses for the kingdom. Globally, the reallocation of Saudi wealth could result in higher U.S. interest rates. That is your Monday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. If you enjoyed this show, please like, share, subscribe, turn on your notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to check out those Palmetto State Armory links in the show description. And as always, I appreciate you guys. You take care and have a wonderful Monday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.